Hi everyone, I'm David Green. Welcome to the final episode of Series 3 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. The HR technology space continues to attract a lot of attention as well as a growing level of investment. There are literally thousands of vendors in this space. John Sumter said there's 40,000 that he's tracking, which means there is a hell of a lot of choice. But whether you are an HR practitioner, a buyer, an investor, or an HR tech company itself, how do you navigate what is a complex and at times confusing market? And should it even be called HR tech anyway? That's the topic for this week's episode, where I talk to one of the most knowledgeable and experienced people working in the space, Jason Corsello, now founder and CEO at the Acadian Company, and previously head of strategy and corporate development at Cornerstone, as we talk about the shift from HR tech to work tech. In our conversation, Jason and I discuss advice to offer to potential investors, startups looking to secure investment, and practitioners looking to buy work tech for their organizations. We talk about the areas of work tech that are attracting the most attention and investment. We also explore the likely areas of consolidation moving forward. And like with all our guests, we look into the crystal ball and ponder what the role of HR and HR tech will be in 2025. This episode is a must listen for anyone in the HR space, particularly those looking to invest, those looking to secure investment for their technologies and practitioners seeking to navigate a complex market. Before we get started, a brief word from our sponsor for Series 3 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. Support for this series is brought to you by Pymetrics. Pymetrics is a future of work platform using data-driven behavioral insights and audited artificial intelligence to help companies better understand their workforce as well as make fairer and more predictive people decisions. Pymetrics serves as a matching layer in the job application process with the ability to assess candidate fit for any role within your company and the greater Pymetrics job marketplace through one single streamlined platform. The Pymetrics platform offers video interviewing and gamified assessments for collecting behavioral data like cognitive and emotional trait profiles as well as numerical and logical reasoning. Candidates are matched to roles based on how they fit each role's success profile, which Pymetric builds off of top performers. To learn more, visit pymetrics.com. Welcome to the Digital HR Leader Show, Jason. It's great to have you here. Yeah, David, likewise. Thanks for having me. Can you give our listeners a quick introduction to yourself and your kind of vision of, of HR or HR tech or work tech even? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been in the broader HR tech landscape for about two decades now, which I'm dating myself a little bit here. Um, I started off as an industry analyst. So that was back in the day where you actually did re real research and understood markets and market size and market trends. Uh, I spent about four years doing uh, consulting. So I was a management consultant at a boutique uh, management firm that was uh, bought into Aperio, which is now a big uh, practice of Cornerstone and Workday. And in the last seven years, I spent at Cornerstone On Demand leading strategy and corporate development. So that was everything from taking on some big uh, initiatives for the business, M&A was part of that remit, as well as um, uh, M&A uh, acquisitions and, and uh, corporate, uh, corporate development, uh, uh, corporate venture, which was investing in companies. So we invested in about a dozen companies or so at Cornerstone. Okay, thank you. And you've written about work tech rather than HR tech, you know, and it's a kind of a shift to that. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so, you know, I think HR tech uh, for too long has been focused on 
automating and process. And it really has been designed for the benefit of the employer. And I think we're at this day and age now where the, the power is shifting to the employee. They have lots of choices. They have lots of demands. And so that's where I think more broadly in work tech, work tech because it's the combination of HR tech. You still need a lot of those things, processes within an organization, but it's more designed to the employee themselves. What do they care about? Is it about progression? Is it about promotion? Is it about purpose? Um, so that's where the blend is starting to come in. And how do you make people more efficient to this work as well? I think, you know, we, we have been um, making HR tech products a lot easier to use, but I think on the employee side, there's still a long way to go. And so being able to make it, you know, Josh Burson has referred to it as kind of in the flow of work. And I think that's what we're trying to accomplish here is how do you make kind of HR tech seamless into employees' lives? They don't even necessarily know about it, but you're helping them achieve their goals at the same time and make it easier to get their work done. And more personalized than HR tech has Absolutely. been in the past. Yeah. yeah, and that's where analytics and data certainly have a, a, a big emphasis. It's almost, you know, you're, you're striving for an outcome maybe you don't necessarily know about just yet. But and we have lots of data, but we, we haven't made the leap into is really making it seamless and, and focusing on whatever those outcomes may be. Okay. And as you talk about data, I'm starting to see a shift really in around who owns the data. You know, historically, that's been the organizations. There seems to be more and more talk now about how employees could potentially own their own data. Is that something you're seeing as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly I think um, here in Europe has been much more influential around data privacy. And I think um, U.S. companies are, are starting to embrace that. But all the things that we're seeing in the consumer world and the, the challenges that, that, that consumer technologies like Facebook and others are having, um, LinkedIn, you can certainly put in that boat as well, that there definitely is more importance. People care much more about their data than they didn't even you know, two or three years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. You, talk, you mentioned Josh. I think um, you know, Josh is quotable, eminently quotable, that's for sure. And I, I heard him talk about the HR technology or work technology landscape as being like the Wild West. John Sumza told me he's tracking around over 40,000 vendors in the space, which I don't know how he manages to do that. Yeah. You know, what are sort of the trends that you're seeing in this space? Because obviously it's something you're analyzing quite deeply. Yeah, I, so yes, there is um, a lot of companies, uh, because the problems are, are, are vast in, in this industry. Um, you know, I, the data, some of the data I look at is more on the, the funding side of companies. And uh, last year, we saw almost $4 billion of venture capital go into kind of broader HR tech or work tech. That's more than the last two years combined. So 18 surpassed both 17 and 16. So there's certainly a lot of venture capital flowing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of venture capital flowing in other markets as well. Um, but there's certainly a lot of interest among investors. Um, I think part of it, part of it is because uh, there's a lot of fragmentation in the marketplace today. Right? You look at recruiting, there's hundreds of, of recruiting, but we still haven't solved a lot of the fundamental recruiting challenges. How do you build you know, a dialogue with a candidate that maybe you didn't have before? And our systems are becoming, you know, the systems that we've traditionally used are, are, need, to be, need to evolve, right? The ATSs of the world, those, those need to evolve from kind of dumb back office transactional systems to you know, systems that candidates actually enjoy using and go and engage and, and have a dialogue with. So I think, you know, in all these areas, recruiting is one of them, learning is, is another one. I think why we see so many companies, as you've mentioned, it is because there's such a great opportunity and there's still a lot of challenges that we haven't fundamentally solved yet. Um, and it's going from that shift from employee-centric to, uh, or employer-centric to employee-centric. 
And in terms of where the investment dollars are going, are there any particular areas where investment's going in? You mentioned obviously recruitment as being, a, I know that's an area where a lot of investment's going in, but what about some of the other areas of? Yeah, what you typically find is recruitment and collaboration are the two areas what we've seen over the last couple of years uh, demand the most investment. Um, certain areas like learning, um, we've seen an up, uptick over the last few years in learning, um, which is certainly an interesting area of opportunity. Um, there's been you know pockets of, of performance last year in terms of investment. It was down, I think, because we saw prior years of investment in areas like performance management. Analytics, I think, is still, we see kind of ebbs and flows in terms of investment of, of technology in, in analytics. Um, I think that's certainly a, a huge opportunity. So I think if you look at them by pockets, you know, you, you kind of see... Uh, trends evolve or change over time, but recruitment and collaboration still are, are fundamentally every year the areas that get most investment. And in terms of advice to investors, I mean, there's a lot of hype around AI and every vendor now tells me they've got AI in their, in their technology. <laughs> I'm sure you know that that's not true. I mean, what sort of advice are you, are you kind of offering to investors? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I think it depends on the, the stages of the companies, right? I mean, if it's an early stage company, the investment looks very different. And, you know, if, if you're an investor, you should be more hands-on, not the later stage investors aren't necessarily hands-on, um, but there's a lot more work at the earliest stages because that's really where you're setting the foundation, right? That's where you're setting how you price, how you package, how you, how you go to market. So investment there looks very different versus a late stage company or a pre-IPO company where it's more, more focused on a financing event, yeah. right? How do you get it to the next round or how do you get it to the outcome? Um, so it's a bit different in terms of those levels of, of investments. But across the board, I mean, there's there's interest from all areas, you know, whether it's seed investment, um, certainly that was up year over year. Um, uh, series B and Series C typically command the most amount of investment. You see the, the bell curve obviously, or, or often um, in all areas of investment, but that's where you see most of the dollar flow in that A and B, or, or I'm sorry, B and C round. Um, uh, but you know, I think each investor has to look at the own, the, the kind of the own unique opportunities in front of them because there's so many different kind of strategies, even financing strategies going on today, where you're seeing now private equity firms play a bigger role in HR tech. Um, some of them are rolling up companies to build a bigger company to have some sort of event in five to seven years. Um, so you know, the nice thing in this market today is there's plenty of capital, whether it's private equity, whether it's venture. Or you know the public markets um, are certainly open as well now. As we know, that doesn't stay open forever, um, but it's a good time to to be in this market. Whether you're, you're raising funds or you're whether deploying funds, there is a lot of capital. The tricky part is how do you, you know, how do you get your focus because there's so many opportunities as you know. And is the the kind of life cycle from initial, taking initial investment through to fruition, whether you your IPO or, or sell, is that is it getting shorter or is it is it is it pretty? pretty common standard? It's certainly getting shorter. I think it, you know, a lot of it depends on what the ambitions are of the company. So, you know, my previous company, Cornerstone On Demand, um, the founders bootstrapped the company for seven years, almost eight years. And you don't often see that. And part of it is because there's a lot, the accessibility of capital is very different from what it was in, in mm -hmm. 99, especially as the, the market uh, bottomed out in 2000. Um, so, you, you so you know, the, so as Cornerstone is an example, it bootstrapped for you know seven years, um, took financing in two thousand and seven that led to an IPO in two thousand and eleven. Um, so you know, over that trajectory, twelve years, 
pretty long time in, in most spaces, m most people's eyes. But you see companies now that can go public in you know five to seven years. So the the cycle certainly is condensing, and part of that is because there are there is plenty of, of capital into the market. What we also see is um, kind of more abandonment, if you will, and that means you know founders either they give up after a few years. There's not that that persistence that probably were once were um, you know 10, 15, 20 years ago. You know, young entrepreneurs now, what you often see is they'll either lose interest in, in some cases or they just don't have the staying power, right? Startups are hard. Creating yeah, companies yeah. are hard, as you know. And, and yes, so, we're finding out. <laughs> yeah, you go through the ebbs and flows of, of startups and it could be brutal at times. Well, and, and also if, if, if you know, it's 40,000 vendors and I'm sure there's more than that out there, you know, most of those aren't going to succeed. That's at right. The end of the day, so uh, that's right. And and listen, success doesn't always necessarily need to be an IPO. Certainly, you know, as an investor, you'd like to see that that outcome. But um, success can mean many different things to many different people, and that's why the variety of, of capital out there is is nice, right? Some you know, for tech companies, you do. In my mind, I think at some point you need need capital because you're playing in a competitive field, and and so it requires capital. But at the same time. You know, being acquired in, in ten years for you know positive outcome to to investors certainly isn't the bad outcome either. So let's turn it turn it around a little bit. Um, you know, we talked a lot about investors. Now, what about the startups themselves? You know, that's looking to get investment. What sort of considerations or what advice would you give to them? Uh, a couple of things. One is um, know what your your vision and mission is. A lot of companies just kind of jump into it and. You know, because they see a problem or they see they, they've got a solution to a perceived problem. But I think it's thinking, what's the, what does the business look like in, in 10 years? And starting to visualize kind of what that path looks like is, is certainly important. Um, you know, from an, if you're out kind of raising money, I think it's knowing what you want from your investors, right? I mean, certainly capital is great, but you should be choosing an investor because they offer something else, whether it's, you know, they know a go-to-market strategy or they know a geography or they have some type of expertise and I think it's part of the knowing what you what you want and need and knowing kind of what you're weak at and where you can get kind of fill in the holes is is an important um, part of that kind of beginning startup journey. And what are some of the uh, let's say some of the mistakes that, that, that startups typically make once they've secured some investment? Oh boy, it's a it's a great question, and um, I wish you could diagnose it to one thing. I yeah, think I there's, I believe right now we have this kind of golden rush mentality in startup land, which is I have to be building faster, I have to be building, uh, you know, more, and sometimes you need to be patient to let a market develop and mature, or there's dynamics in the market that allow you to be a little bit patient, so you can't. Always be driving, you know, the Ferrari down 180 miles per hour. I think sometimes when you do that, you have risk of of burnout or uh, other types of challenges. So it's you know it's persistence and patience combined with kind of knowing when to when to accelerate and wanting to to pull back. It's hard. It's hard, and you never really kind of know. Mm. Um, but. Uh, uh, but because of the, the competition in the marketplace, my fear is right now with a lot of companies over the last five years is they've run too fast, they've taken too much capital, their valuations you know are, are at a pretty high level where they're they're forced to run out and they have one of two options: either they hit that that destination that that journey, but more so 
you know, they have risk of uh, burning out the engine. Yeah. And at that point, you know, no one wins because your investors certainly, you know, lose their investment in some cases, or at least don't don't maximize the potential of their investment. And, and the founding teams just kind of, you know, hit a wall, which is not what you want to do in startup land. So it's it's tricky right now. I mean, you know, the the great thing, as I said, with all the capital is, is it, it, you know, I think in some cases it's created some bad habits with companies. Um, and maybe I shouldn't say it's necessarily bad habits, but it's it's forced them to do unnatural things, and sometimes you just got to be patient. And I guess it's getting that balance right between products and sales and marketing, because obviously you can't can't have one without the other. That's right. Yeah, and what you know, what I've seen in the last few years is um, companies have definitely overspent in sales and marketing. It's easy to do, right? It's easy to say, oh, we'll just hire three more headcount, and you know, if one works, we're still, you know, we're still net positive, or you know, we should be investing in marketing and events and all these things. So there's certainly, I think, been a, a bit of overinvestment in, in those two areas in particular over the last few years. And, and so when you do that, it, you know, you either have to sustain it over time or, or you know, you start to lose interest. You know, nothing's worse than, you know, losing interest amongst the, the market. And I guess as well, with things changing so rapidly, sometimes the companies are going to come to a little bit of a pivot as well. They might start off with one business problem or product that they're trying to, or solution they're trying to, to solve that problem, but then that might change. And then you've got to be aware of what's going on, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always a changing marketplace. I mean, you know, at Cornerstone, when I was sitting in the M&A seat, you're always thinking about, you know, two, two steps ahead, like playing chess, right? So what's the move that someone else is making? You know, how do I counteract that move? So you're constantly, you know, it's obviously a bigger company. You're, you've got a bit more resources to do that. But I'm always thinking, you know, two steps ahead of what happens if, right? What happens if these things play out in the market? Because certain things, events that can happen that can change the trajectory of a market, right? Someone gets acquired mm. or, you know, a new company like Workday comes on the scene. Um, so, so, you know, it's certainly important to be aware of those changing dynamics and, Certainly, pivot is is an option, right? There's there's been plenty of companies that have pivoted to being successful companies over time. So we've kind of looked at it from an investment perspective, a um, bit a bit from the startup. Now the perspective of the practitioner. Yeah. Now we talked about the sheer amount of work tech companies there are out there at the yeah. moment. How does a, how do practitioners stay on top of that, and how do they sort out the, the 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 reality from the hype in terms of you know what they need to potentially buy? I think they just have to know themselves. I mean, I think people have historically bought technology because their peers bought the technology or they did it as a reaction to something else. I think it's really understanding. For me, you know, when I was a consultant, we tried to build kind of a three-year or five-year journey for companies, right? You're not going to fix everything overnight. And sometimes, you know what, some things you don't need to, to fix. Yeah. They're good enough and that's okay. So it's figuring out what you're really, really great at and then figuring out what you're not so great at. You know, for me, I think the bigger fundamental challenge is, to me, I think just work over the next 10 years is going to look completely different, right? I mean, data I've looked at, productivity is down 50% in the last decade. Right? We have all this technology, but has it improved us from a productivity standpoint, right? Average tenure is down. For the average employee in the U.S., average tenure is four years. For, um, you know, the the... 25 to 28 demographic, it's less than three years now. It's 2.8 years. You go to Silicon Valley and you're lucky to find someone to stay at a job for, for two years. So I think there's other macro economic or bigger challenges that companies have to face that they have to really understand 
you know, maybe the existing technology that's out and available isn't going to serve what their organization looks like in the next five or ten years. So as part of it's looking at the data, part of it's looking at you know the workforce itself. It's also you know, I'm seeing in, in the U.S. there's this kind of shift to, and this isn't necessarily new, but more flexibility around work. Right? I want to work when and where I want. The whole gig economy certainly is increasing. Freelancer economy is, is increasing. So I think there's this whole perception and change of, of work. And it, it's always evolving, right? You may be a new parent. You may be, mm. you know, changes in your life that forces changes in your work. And I think those are bigger fundamental challenges that companies have to be thinking about much more than the technology that supports it. Yeah, and I think you, you're right. And it's not always about the technology, isn't it? Because you can buy a great piece of technology, but then you might not implement it very well. It might be in a new area and there's no change management. You know, So I think having the right mindset is is, is absolutely vital. Yeah, and, and changing the way they buy technology, right? I mean, I I used to dread when we would get RFPs and you just like... <laughs> You know, and you hear that, oh, yeah, 70% of RFPs, they've already made their decision before they've even gone to market. So I think fundamentally the way that we, we buy technology needs to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, I remember in past roles responding to RFPs, and I used to think if I haven't had any engagement with the, <laughs> with the buyer, then it actually is probably not worth responding to the That's RFP. Right. So, That's right. Uh, it was good. So you talked about M&A, and obviously there's quite a lot going on at the moment. Uh, if we just look at the engagement space, for example, see Culture Amp bought Zagata, yep. uh, LinkedIn bought Glint, and uh, SAP spent, what was it, $8 billion reportedly on Qualtrics. Yep. Um, you know, it's a, there's a lot of stuff. Do you, do you see more consolidation happening, and is there any particular areas that you, you see more, more going on? Yeah, I think we're definitely going to see more consolidation. What's a bit different you know, this time versus other kind of cons uh, um, consolidation cycles is that there's a lot more private equity influence in consolidation right now. And so what that means is that they're much more kind of financial buyers yeah. versus strategic buyers that are buying, you know, in SAP's case, right, they saw a need that they needed this experience platformer experience layer. And so that's why they went out and, and bought Qualtrics. Um, so, I, you know, I think the you know, the good news for companies is is there are more buyers than ever, right? You've got strategic buyers, you've got private equity buyers, um, you've got um, uh, public investors that certainly are coming in earlier as well. So um, that's certainly you know great news for for a lot of companies. But I think this this consolidation wave will probably see much more focus on the financial buyers, rather the rolling up companies. Um, one area in particular, as you asked, is I think recruiting is going to be an interesting area of consolidation. I just wrote about this. Um, just last week, um, I think that recruiting, we're going to see a lot of consolidation this year um, and maybe even to next year. And part of this is you've got kind of legacy systems or, or fundamental systems that now are are needing new infusion of, of, of innovation. And so that's why they'll go by a CRM system. Um, so recruiting is certainly an area I think that we'll see a lot more consolidation this year, probably more so than any of the other areas. And I guess another thing that, you know, we all heard the stories from some of the vendors a few years ago, you know, you need to buy a whole suite because if you buy a whole suite, you've got the one yep. source of truth. And I think now people are starting to realize that's not the case, you know, but if you look at ATS, I mean, we were talking about recruitment and certainly some of my background, you know, there are some of those legacy systems that a lot of companies still have. Yep. And then there are the systems that came from some of the big HR core uh, systems as well. And then we've got some new players in that space, you know, are we going to see maybe some of the big companies buying some of the new generation uh, vendors, do you think, or ripping out some of those 
technologies they bought a few years ago? I think certainly that's an option. I think if you, you have to look at each company individually, all of the, the bigger kind of, I don't want to call them platform companies, but you know, Oracle and SAP and Workday and, and Cornerstone, they're all kind of very different companies, right? Mm. And their, their strategy, their product strategy is a bit different. So I think we'll see a mix of of build and buy over the next couple of years, filling out gaps that they they had, or you know, for some acquisitions that haven't been hugely successful, they may kind of bring in other other types of technologies. I think you know the nice thing with a lot of these companies, they are sitting on a lot of cash, so they can you know, and in, in some cases, you know, SAP uh, some some have been very uh, very open with their strategy, which is you know they've got to digest this big acquisition they just made, similar to what they did with Success Factors. Before they can do something much bigger, that doesn't mean they may not do some smaller tuck-ins. Uh, but uh, you know, there are certainly you know a good amount of of strategic players out there that you know have gaps in their solution. I think the you know you ask the question of best of breed versus versus sweet. And I think we always have that debate, and you know, you know, some some years, oh, it's sides to sweet versus best of breed. But I do agree with your your premise that I think we're shifting back towards more of a, a, a best of breed focus because functionality is just much more richer. I think we, we haven't seen uh, the, the suites really play out as I would have hoped, right? That have the both the depth of functionality as well as the ease of, of integration and all the other things that you'd want. So, um, but that's a, that's a tension that's always going to exist, right? You know, maybe, maybe one of the, the, um, uh, Sweet players buys you know some of the best of breeds, and all of a sudden that that changes. But um, well, I think we'll always continue, continue to see that tension. And what's interesting, I can't remember the exact figure. It's something like seventy percent of mergers and acquisitions right. fail, but yet we still do it. That's right. Well, I mean, because when they succeed, you know, you look great. Like look at in the consumer side, you know, Google would probably be a little bit of a different company without YouTube, or you know, Facebook and, and Instagram. So. You know, I think certainly, you know, and even our market, I think, you know, SA would, SAP would say that their acquisition of success factors was a successful one, right? Now, maybe, you know, conversely, Oracle Tleo maybe didn't play out as well as they had thought. So, you know, I think it's certainly when it when it works well, it certainly, you know, has huge potential and, and huge opportunity. Um, and I think that's what people strive for. It's, I think the, the challenge is less into into figuring out which one to, to buy. I mean, certainly, you know, you want to buy one that's that fits and has culture fit. But, you know, what I've learned over over my years is the integration is really the hard part, right? And, and you know, what most companies like to do is kind of absorb it all in and, you know, make it their own. Where I think more recently, the best integration strategies are is let it run. Let that, let that Instagram, let them kind of run as a separate business. Maybe over time, you know, we start to infuse other parts of the core, you know, Facebook business into that. And so I think it's understanding what integration strategy works well for your company. And sometimes, you know, it's what's fascinating is the big emanation machine that was revered 15 years ago was Oracle. Yeah. Now not so much, right? Maybe because certain people have, have left the business. But I think you have to evolve it as well. Yeah, and I mean, I mean you mentioned that buying and just letting it run, which seems to be what Microsoft's done with LinkedIn. And they That's both right. seem to be very successful, particularly in our space now. Microsoft yeah. appears to be the coming force within the kind of HR technology space. Yeah, it's a great example. I think they've done a tremendous job with, with LinkedIn in a short period. I mean, it's only been two years or I mean, not even two years. But I think they've done the right thing, which is just let it run, infuse it with capital and resources, which they've done, 
And you know, if you looked at the, the best acquisitions of the last 10 years in the enterprise space, I'd put that right, right near the top of them. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to peer into your crystal ball for the last couple of questions. Oh boy. Um, so we won't hold you to it, although we might, <laughs> we might play it back in a few years' time. What do you think are the next big things we're going to see in the kind of HR or work technology space? Oh, Either man. products, but you know, you know, you could answer any way you want to answer. It. <laughs> yeah, listen. If I if I knew that answer, I'd probably be, you know, sitting on a on a yacht in in the in the uh, Mediterranean somewhere. I I think it's I think there's two things that are happening. So I'm going to probably dodge your question a little bit, but try to try to come bring it back together. So you've got, I think the technology is shifting pretty significantly, right? So we went from kind of client server, you know, the, the last decade has been defined by cloud and being in the cloud and, and all the benefits that you get with cloud. I think we're now at the kind of the beginning or early stages of another, another technology shift. And that's, mm. you know, I consider more data, you know, we're going from kind of cloud to data. Now what that means is, yeah, you can, you know, the, you've got the AI pixie dust out there and you never know what it really necessarily looks like from vendor to vendor. But I think there's certainly the companies that get it right, I think, are going to be massive successes. Um, so I think, you know, so there's the technology and the platform shift that's occurring. Um, and then on the other side, you've got kind of this changing nature of work that we talked about. So it's those two worlds coming together. What that looks like, I don't, I wish I, I, wish I knew the answer. Um, but so maybe I'll, I'll say one other answer. I think there is a huge opportunity in this market to be more of an open platform. I've, I've, I've been on a, a bandwagon for a couple of years now. No one has really become that open platform in the HR tech world. There's other folks that have done it in other tangential markets like CRM. You know, Slack has certainly done a great job on the, on the collaboration yeah. side being an open platform. And no one has really kind of done that in our market. I think that's a huge opportunity. And that doesn't mean you're kind of an open platform from day one. You know, what we've seen with Slack is they focus on a couple of features, messaging being their core feature, and they've kind of opened up their platform from there. So I think that to me is probably the one of the, the bigger opportunities out there. Okay, fantastic. We will hold you to it in a few years. <laughs> um, and then on the HR side, so this is a question we ask all our guests on the show, actually. Um, where do you think HR will be in 2025? Uh, I think it's going to look very different. I mean, yeah, I think you're going to see, I think we've seen flashes of brilliance among certain HR teams or certain companies that do HR really, really well. Google mm -hmm. is always a great example of one, although, you know, they've done some things right and some things they haven't gotten right. Um, but I think it's shifting away from a kind of a, of a, kind of follow the rules compliance, and this has been happening, right, um, uh, to much more of, of really focus on the employee, right? That shift is, is occurring. And, and so, you know, an example of that, I, I refer to Silicon Valley. I grew up in, in Silicon Valley. I don't live there now, but I go back quite frequently. And you don't see H, traditional HR departments anymore. What they care about is culture. What they care about is initiatives that are important to them, diversity and inclusion. That's one that we keep talking about, but certainly... You know, companies that are, are, when I say focus, they're actually measuring it, monitoring it, putting plans in place to improve it. And um, so those are more kind of core strategic initiatives that they're focused on that maybe they weren't five and ten years ago. Maybe they had diversity inclusion programs, but they, you know, it was more, mm. you know, kind of a, not something that they were necessarily looking at the data and measuring the data and managing the, the outcomes of that data. So I think that's where the shift's going to be over the next five to seven years is, 
much more focused on the employee, much more focused on things that are important to them um, and, and making sure that there's flexibility into that because it's, it's changing, right? If it, the thing that most employees haven't necessarily figured out yet is how do they build this loyalty of, of employee because it's losing, it's, it's going the opposite direction. And yes, the economy has some part to do with that, but I think it's building that, that loyalty and culture is really where you see the sustaining companies um, separate from their peers. And I think as we said throughout, if, if, if companies use the technology correctly, then they can actually try and, try and imbue some of that loyalty by personalizing some of these technology for you know, what, what, what employees and what the workforce wants. Yeah, yeah, and when I say employee, you know, you've said this a couple times, which is personalizing that experience is, is so important because um, you know, the fear that, that a lot of companies have, a lot of tech companies have in particular, are burnout. Mm. Employees are just burning out more faster than they, they ever have. And it's not because they necessarily hate the company or they hate the job, they're just, they've been running fast for, for a period of time. Like, how can you recognize that? We certainly have technology that probably can start to diagnose and recognize things like burnout. You know, other things that employees are dealing with that, um, are, are important that we should be focused on. Jason, thank you. Fascinating to see how it plays out. Thank you for being on the Digital HR Leader Show. How can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Jay Corsello um, uh, is probably the best one. And then uh, obviously LinkedIn and, and others. And your website, where some of your papers oh, are? AcadianAdvisory.com. That's where we publish research, publish uh, a lot of the content. And then uh, the blog, Acadian Insights, is where we have a lot of blog content. So right. please come visit. We will do. Thank you, Jason. All right. Thanks, Thank David. Bye-bye. Pleasure. That's all for this week and this series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. But we'll be back next week with Series 4, where I'll be speaking to Keith McNulty, Global Director of People Analytics and Measurement at McKinsey, and also a prolific writer on people analytics and modern HR. Don't miss that one. You can also catch up with the rest of Series 3 of the podcast with Dave Ulrich, Ian O'Keefe, Frida Polly, and Jill Larson, by visiting the myhrfuture.com page. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on iTunes and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make this podcast. If you haven't already, do check out myhrfuture.com for the latest news and exclusive training content to prepare you for the future of HR. And you can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter there too.